so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Many people often think that thoughtful interaction with the arts is only for certain creative types. But Karen Swallow Pryor, Mike Cosper, Alyssa Wilkinson, and Stephen Bush help us see that the arts are for all people and the gospel shapes how Christians interact with them. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, hey, we're, we're here for a roundtable discussion about state of the art. It's the title of this discussion. And it's kind of just a, a freewheeling, hopefully, conversation around what's going on with, with faith and the arts in particular, pop culture, that sort of thing. Um, our panelists are Karen Swallow Pryor, Alyssa Wilkinson, Stephen Bush. My name is Mike Hosper. And Karen, I'm going to start with throwing the first question out to you, but any of you all who want to jump in on this, please do. Evangelicals have had kind of a strange relationship with pop culture and the arts. Um, at one point, you've described it with the words fear and suspicion. What do you think is the root of that fear? Well, I think that, you know, as Christians, we have the answer to the biggest problem facing the human condition. That is sin and death that have entered the world because of sin. We have the answer in Christ. So I think that having that big and most important answer can make us a little fearful about asking the smaller questions. And some of those small questions are are actually pretty big. I think that we think that if we, if we have questions about the things that happen in between that completed work of Christ that Tripp Lee just talked about, um, then that signals some sort of, of, of doubt or fear or, or an indication that we don't actually believe that ultimate answer. But to borrow a metaphor from a field I completely don't understand, math. <laughs> um, even in math, you know, they give you the answers in the back of the textbook. You have the answers, but what we're supposed to do is to show our work. And engaging the culture, all of the arts, literature, visual arts, film, poetry, music, good stuff, not the bad examples, but the good stuff are, are grappling with those questions. It's, a, it's, it's an attempt to show the work while we're waiting for that final answer to come. And we need not be afraid of those small questions and of, and of showing our work as we work out our salvation and fear and trembling. Yeah. Melissa, do you have anything you want to add to that? Something yeah, I think that um, I'm always thinking about this from the perspective of a pop culture critic. Um, but I think that we forget that pop culture really is at heart a type of art. And art is a thing that where um, it's, the, it's the spot where an artist and a viewer or an audience member meet. And the work of art isn't finished until both of those people have invested themselves in it. And so I think a lot of our fear comes from the same fear that we might have if we were sort of left in an elevator with that person for 10 minutes, right? And we don't know what to say. We don't really understand them. We're not sure we speak the same language. And so approaching a work of art, which is where they've kind of tried to express their view of the world, 
requires us to approach it with a lot of generosity and openness. And that doesn't mean that we just kind of throw up our hands and leave our convictions at the door, but it does mean that we come to it with a lot of generosity, perhaps even more because we're Christians Mm -hmm. um, and because we believe we have nothing to fear from any work of art. Um, or any any person. And so we have to come to it with that attitude. And I think that scares us. I mean, it certainly scares yeah. me a lot of the time, and this is what I do um, <laughs> all the time. <laughs> well, it seems, too, like the opportunity is almost to, to see in, engaging with art, or however you want to phrase that, as a chance to love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's a neighbor, they're sharing their story. Stephen, you've made an intentional effort to bring the arts into the church in some new and innovative ways. Why don't you, maybe for those who aren't familiar with it, give us a, a, a few sentences to explain that and then tell us why you're doing what you're trying to do. Yeah, I, uh, I serve at the Austin Stone Community Church in Austin as the lead storyteller. And, and we have this ministry called the Story Team. And it's a storytelling ministry that it, uh, empowers volunteer artists in our church. And so we have over 60 artists that uh, signed up to serve. We have filmmakers, we have writers, we have photographers, we have editors, we have musicians that are all coming together to, to help us tell these stories of incredible life change because Jesus is still changing lives. You know, like as, as, as the church, when we're, when we're preaching the gospel, God promises that it will not return void. And so if we're preaching the gospel week in and week out, lives are going to be changed. And so it's just, our ministry is built out of, out of scripture. In Psalm 102, 18, it says, let this be recorded for a generation to come. Mm-hmm. So the people yet to be created will praise the Lord. And so what we've done is we've created this ministry that is basically telling modern day Ebenezer's of people's lives. Mm-hmm. Because people who aren't even born yet are going to experience these films, read these stories, and they're going to come to know Jesus because of it. And mm-hmm. so that's the heart of what we do at the Stone. Where that came from is... Um, most of you guys don't know me, but I, I started in ministry in 2003 as a bass player for this band called Spur 58. And me and Aaron Ivey, who's now the worship leader at The Stone, we moved from Texas to Nashville. And we thought we were going to change the world. We were young 20-somethings, and, and we thought we had all the answers. And what it really turned out to be, and about five years into it, man, we, came, we became very jaded and cynical and critical of the church. And um, it, was, it, was a, it was a time where God just, like, convicted us. And me and Aaron sat on the side of the road, and we were talking about, like, what are we doing? Why, why are we doing this? We originally had a love for this, and now we're, we're, we're judgmental, and we're writing blogs that are criticizing churches and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And God was like, because you're not grounded in the local church. You're not tied to my bride. And right then and there, we were like, God, like, help us get tied to a local church. And um, Matt Carter, the pastor of the Stone, a few weeks later, called us and said, hey, man, um, our worship leaders moved into Atlanta to help start a church. Would you guys want to come in and, and be the worship pastors? And we said yes. Mm. And that was eight years ago. We loaded up. Just last week was our, our, our eight-year anniversary where me and Aaron loaded our entire families into one U-Haul wow. and took all of our stuff down to Austin, Texas. My wife had never moved there. I've been there to visit. She's from Nashville. And so I took her to Texas. And in the last eight years, man, we have worked tirelessly to, to love the local church, to be able to create an environment for artists to be engaged with the local church. And it's just been incredible to see, man. How, in doing that, like, how have you learned, like, how can the church better serve artists? Because artists are often feel either used by the church uh, or marginalized. Yeah. So what have you learned about that? I think, you know, looking back to it, you know, I've been thinking about this question because you, the original question was like, how, do, how can churches value and respect artists? Yeah. And, and for me, like, to have the ear of 
of these pastors, you, you guys who are shepherding flocks, I, I need to apologize and ask for forgiveness from you guys because for those first five years in my ministry, I was a critical, cynical, jaded artist. And like, I wasn't doing anything to help beautify the body of Christ. And so when God like redeemed that in me and brought us down to Austin, I, I had this heart to want to like create an environment for artists to be empowered and to be equipped. And so at the Stone, what's really working for us, man, is is we empower we empower our artists. Like the elders, the leaders of our church are empowering that. And there's a couple of things that churches you guys could could do to empower those uh, these artists. And, and one of that is to put artists in um, high leadership uh, levels. Uh, Aaron Ivey is our worship pastor, and he's an elder, and he's on the strategic team for our church. And what that does, that's showing the artists in our church, hey, this church values art so much that they have a worship pastor as the executive, and part of the executive team of this church. And then that trickles down. And then also, I think, like, what we can do as churches, I, I would encourage you guys to give value to artists, is to actually empower them to do what they do, to trust them to do what they do. I know so many worship leader friends, and I, I traveled for 10 years leading worship, and I know so many worship leader friends around the country who every week, uh, they've been called to this church, but every week they get handed a set list by their pastor or from uh, some other worship leader. And basically what you have is a... Um, I've got a human jukebox. You might as well just play the CD and, and do that. But, man, we need to be able to trust these guys yeah. and these ladies to be able to lead and to create for our churches. But with that, also, artists, you need, we need to, like, work to gain the trust of those yeah. pastors. Like, what we're doing at The Stone has been eight years of, of me and Aaron and other pa- artists on staff building that trust. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a plausibility issue, the way you're describing it. It's like, it's like with anybody that you're wanting to see invested in the life of a local church it has to be plausible that you can be empowered and that you can lead yeah changing gears a little bit you know Alyssa, you on the other hand watch a lot of movies <laughs> you watch a lot of tv um what do you make of the gap between sort of the evangelical creative world and the world of hollywood more broadly that gap is smaller than a lot of people think i it is um so a lot of my work um, over the past few years at Christianity Today has involved connecting with filmmakers and storytellers and people in the industry who are um, evangelicals or Christians, or a lot of them, a lot of them grew up in church. And they have moved away for various reasons that are very, very wide. Um, but they um, often harbor a real curiosity about an affection for those people who they kind of used to know or or it's their families and this is true of critics and people in the business itself and there's a lot of christians working in hollywood Um, but even when there aren't um, what i find is a huge um, a huge interest in religion right now and i you know i think this is a shift um, that we've really i've certainly seen over the past 10 years writing about film and tv Um, there are bigger religious conversations going on at the Sundance Film Festival and on cable TV channels right now, and network TV channels, than you'll find in most any other place. Mm-hmm. Um, serious explorations of Christianity with serious intent to actually look at what, what the implications of that are. And not just Christianity anymore. This is starting to expand um, yeah. to Islam and Judaism as well. Um, but the spiritual conversations that are happening around those are some of the most profound conversations I'm ever in. But they're all kind of happening with um, people who maybe wouldn't call themselves 
evangelicals. They might go to church sometimes, but they're eager to kind of understand what the, in some ways, the world has been sucked dry of enchantment right. um, for so long, and movies and TV, as the most popular forms of art, are able to re-enchant the world and and um, put some of that back into people's lives, and so they're kind of responding to it. And at the same time, it's pop culture, right? And we're all like, whatever, it's just TV. So the stakes feel a little lower than maybe yeah. going out to your local, you know political office and trying to have a conversation with people where the stakes feel much higher. There's a, there's a different sort of feeling around art, yeah. um, which is what art can do for us, I think. So what do you think accounts for the shift? If over the last decade you're seeing more and more of it, yeah. why? Why has that happened? There's got to be a lot of factors there. One of them is definitely that I think evangelicals have, in general, started to take art seriously in a broad way, um, particularly over the last 10 years. And I've been involved with faith and art movements for that long and definitely seen a shift, even in New York City, which um, you know is a place full of artists and full of Christians. Um, so that's certainly been a big part of it, starting to see art as a vocation for people and not just like a nice hobby you can do in your free time, but something that you're called to. Um, that's been a big part of it. And then also, I think that people are just, um, the cynicism of Gen X has started to sort of wear very thin, right? And millennials, and I am on the top end of that age spectrum, are kind of interested in all the things that weren't handed down to them by their parents. And that vacuum that is created by an absence of religion wants to be filled by something. So it might be filled by something that maybe we might not agree with, but artists are trying real hard to find places to talk about that. And so you can see this in, I mean, in nearly everywhere. I I write about this and I can barely keep up um, because there are many things that I I can't even get the time to watch. There are so many of them. (laughs) Karen, I'd be interested in your take on this too, because with your your work in, in the literature world, you span a much broader kind of time frame with your studies. How does where we are fit in with, with I mean, that's a little big question, but the last two or 300 years of English <laughs> sure, literature. Sure. Yeah, in, in five minutes, let's see. <laughs> yeah, we go. Um, I, no, this is a very important point because if you look back in, in history at, at visual arts and literature and poetry, Christians for hundreds of years, if not more, were the, were the leading contributors of, of culture and art, um, just Michelangelo and a lot of the great uh, writers. And they, you know, I think we live in a time now where we tend to either revere art and feel it's too distant from us and we don't understand it, or we see just the junk that's on television, we want to distance ourselves from that for other reasons, when in fact, if we look through history, the, the church's role in art history has been one not just of engaging the culture, which we've been talking about here, and, and that's that's good, but actually shaping and making the culture, to use yeah. Andy Crouch's phrase. And so we can learn from um, from our predecessors in church history who gave us some of the greatest gifts um, in the art world and who have influenced and shaped our culture by doing that. And, you know, we can do this, we can do the same thing. Um, but it, we need to, um, we need to get beyond either revering culture and worshiping it too much or re- worshiping art or rejecting it completely and, and find some sort of a balance. Yeah. Well, it seems as well to look at the history, we come back to this difficult question of like the, the, the Christian subculture. I mean, that wasn't right. a thing right. for, for so long. So it'd be interesting, I mean, from your perspective, you're doing art for the church. 
and that's a that's sort of a unique sphere. How do you want to see that work over the next ten years? What's your, what's your hope that comes from yeah, doing the kind of work and discipleship you're doing? Man, what we're trying to do is like we champion and, and encourage our artists to not only create for the church, but art from the church. You know, like a lot of our filmmakers, we have over 18 filmmakers who volunteer on our teams, but they're out there like making their own short films and documentary films. One of the guys who uh, helps us out some, he's got a feature length film that just won South by Southwest and a bunch of other film festivals and it's being released next month, like nationwide. Wow. And he's a partner at our church, and but he's, he's addressing a topic that needs to be talked about and it needs to create conversation and I'm so proud of him man I get to champion him and check in on how he's doing and it's amazing and so he's creating art from the church that's engaging and helping shape culture but then we can also make art that's that's for the church and that's what I want to see I want to see more churches begin to empower artists because what it really boils down to is as the pastors in this room like many of you guys have artists in your church and it comes down to a stewardship issue. It's a stewardship of talent that's sitting in your pews or in your chairs. And because if you have a, a talented writer or photographer and, and they're handing out a bulletin on a Sunday, that's all good and everything. But how much more uh, fruitful would they be if they could a, a actually engage in a ministry that allows them to flourish and use the God-given gifts that God has given them to benefit and to beautify right. the bride of Christ? One of the things we've seen at Sojourn is... It, it takes artists a while to, to sort of come out of their shells and even let you know, um, particularly if they're kind of a, an established artist. And it seems like there's two reasons. I'd love to hear you on this. The two reasons I've, I've seen that sort of resistance, um, on the one hand, is that sort of fear of getting pegged and like, oh, you're an artist, can you paint our Easter backdrop? <laughs> <laughs> or on, on the other hand, the fear of, are you going to judge me for the work that I make? Mm. And so if you've got people working in film and they're, they're going out there, you know, they're, if, if they're artists, they're dealing with human life and they're dealing with darkness yeah. and their, their art does that. And oftentimes in the church, we react, you know, we're, we polarize, we set up hedges. Oh, you can't use those words. You can't show that violence. You can't do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. What have you experienced there? Man, one of our, our biggest things that we value is telling the dark side of the story. Like, we live in a broken world, and so we're not afraid to engage in really difficult topics like abortion, same-sex attraction, um, adultery, you know, divorce, all kinds of things, because in that, whenever, whenever we're able to tell a story of a really dark moment, and then when Jesus steps in and redeems it, it makes it look that much more glorious and that much more amazing. And so we're able to do that. And so we, we go after really difficult stories that for a long time have been taboo in the church, and we don't want to touch, touch on that. But I want us, as, as, as the, the global church, to be able to engage the dark side of the story, to be able to tell a more honest story. Because I'm friends with a lot of artists in Austin. Austin is, a, is like New York, is like a, an art city. And so many of my friends who, like, once were in the church and they've left the church, yeah. and it's because we haven't uh, engaged the dark side of our story. And so they see it as inauthentic. You know, like, I, I, I laugh, like, online, I see the hashtag live authentic. It's, it's such a comical, like, hashtag right. because it's not, you know, like what you're portraying is not an authentic life. And so we as artists, especially in the church, and we can really go after those dark stories, but show the beauty of Jesus and the gospel and how it's played out in that, man, you, you will see more and more artists come forward. Another thing is like whenever you strive for excellence, like we value excellence. Yeah. Um, and as a ministry, we fight for excellence. We don't have it perfected. I mean, we, we didn't invent documentary storytelling, but we're trying to do it the best we can for our church. And as we do that, the better we 
we get, the more talented people start coming out of the woodworks because they're like, oh, I can, I can be a part of that because this is not terrible. And like, <laughs> I, I want to I be a part of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen that in music ministry a ton, that excellence attracts excellence. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, shifting gears a little bit, um, speaking of the dark side, Alyssa, you wrote a book about zombies and dystopias, <laughs> the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Uh, why do you think the dystopian genre in particular, you know, you see it in the Hunger Games, you see it in The Road, it's sort of everywhere. Uh, Station Eleven was a big book a few years ago, beautiful dystopian tale. Why are we obsessed with the end of the world <laughs> right now? Uh, so stories of apocalypse have been with us since the dawn of time. Ever since humans arrived on the scene, they started talking about the end of the world. And um, <laughs> in general, that has been a hopeful tale, actually. So if we think of the story of Noah... Uh, as an apocalyptic tale. It's, it's the story of a world being swept away, but it's also a hit of the reset button to sort of start over, right? And the book of Revelation gives us the exact same story of not a wiping away, but a renewal. So dystopian stories are the main mode in which we tell apocalyptic stories today, and those are where the button doesn't really get pressed, right? Um, but it turns out if you really look at those stories closely, um, so I'm thinking, for instance, here of Battlestar Galactica, the new one, which is a great TV show, um, that looks like dystopia for most of the show, but near the end you discover it's actually the period in which the button is being hit, right? And The Walking Dead, for instance, seems to be indicating that it's that kind of story as well. Um, even The Hunger Games, now that's a very bleak story at the end, um, but those stories tell us what we're most anxious about as people, what it is that we, we find anxiety-inducing about our society and our culture. And so by looking at all those things, we were able to sort of draw some generalizations about that and about what it means to live faithfully in the middle of our culture um, based on what our culture is telling us about what we think about ourselves And I think our obsession with it is the same. We feel like something is changing. Something is passing away. Something is is coming, and we don't know what it is. But, you know, that's that's been true for all of time. So really, it's not a new thing. It's about the oldest thing possible. Um, But we we use those stories to kind of work out our anxieties about ourselves. Uh, And that was probably one of the most interesting things we found when we were writing the book. Talk to me about that a little more. What kind of anxieties are we working out when we say... You know, when we read The Hunger Games. Yeah. Well, for instance, we are anxious about um, our conveniences, um, the things we've created to make our lives easier, actually kind of taking over and forming a soft tyranny, uh, taking over us to the point where we don't even notice what's really going on. And that's what's happened in The Hunger Games. Um, Or we're anxious about this world where we value, like, being true to yourself over anything else. Uh, what Charles Taylor calls the ethic of authenticity, um, that idea that you must be true to yourself. And so if, if you're, for instance, married to someone and they just aren't really true to you anymore, you can, you can just you know, get rid of them. They don't fit with you anymore, so you can just get rid of them. Well, no, there's, there's a lot more to human existence than that. Um, and so throughout the book, we kind of pull out some of those themes mm. um, that uh, seem to be true of our time um, in a unique way, perhaps, or in a unique way for a lot of human civilization. Um, we're, we're anxious about pluralism. We're both positive and anxious about it. And so we work those questions out. Um, and we're anxious about loneliness. So we make movies like Her. And so they're just ways of us kind of trying to see what, what's the end of this. Yeah. Um, this. The answers are really interesting, though. Yeah, no doubt. Well, all three of you work with young artists, young writers. You know, I'm, I'm curious, 
What are you saying to them as they, particularly if they're young believers mm -hmm. and they're like, I want to be a writer or I want to be a filmmaker, um, how are you speaking into their lives? We'll start with you, Karen. Well, I mean, I, th I think sort of pulling together a few of these threads, um, what we're seeing, the, the resurgence we're seeing, I think, um, in interest in the arts has to do with this, this time and place in the, in the millennial generation. Um, and it also has to do with something larger, which is what is often called and is debatable whether it exists or not, but is postmodern culture. Right. And one of the characteristics of, of postmodern culture is an emphasis on aesthetic experience. So this is part of why we're seeing more of an embrace of the arts even within the church, thank goodness. Um, but especially among young people, the cynicism and selfishness and, um, and greed of, of the Generation X, which I'm a member of, so I can say that, um, has, has waned. And there is an interest in, in not just content, but form, not just in truth, but love, speaking the truth in love, and, and so it, and not just what is said, but how it's said, how, whether it's excellent or not. And this is, this is wonderful. This is exciting for someone who teaches literature. But aesthetic experience is not necessarily distinct from, it, it, it absolutely is not distinct from religious experience. Our culture sees them as different, but really there is nothing, I mean, Christianity is a faith that it's, it's not just a, it's not just a religious experience, but it is an aesthetic experience. It's for the whole person, yeah. and so teaching in a Christian university is exciting to be able to take this resurging interest in excellence and aesthetic experience and show how that is very that, that really cannot be separated from our faith and how it can be worked out in our faith. Um, and so it's been a different experience teaching in the in the past several years than when I started over 25 years ago. Yeah. Um, students are more receptive to integrating faith and art. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, literature in general is more accepting of that than it was 25 years ago, mm -hmm. probably. Absolutely. Right? Right. Yeah. How about you, Alyssa? Um, well, uh, so I've talked to a lot of marketers of films who've said to me things like, we just... Um, we don't understand why Christian, young Christian filmmakers don't want to participate in the festival system, for instance. And a lot of it is an attempt to jump um, kind of the hurdles that normal filmmakers go through, which is developing your craft and working through these sort of methods that have been built up over time because they work. They actually help people become skilled at their craft. Um, so working with writers predominantly, but also with aspiring filmmakers, that's the thing I'm... I am trying to say, which is like, go to film school, work on film sets. Just because you can make a movie with your iPhone doesn't mean you should right now. Um, just because you think you can write doesn't mean you can. And so you need to work with editors and just all these things that um, I think we, for a long time we were like, I'll just go do that in church and it'll be great and everybody will accept it because it has Jesus on it. Um, but there's a lot of, a lot of craft that, um, that we need to accept and be humble enough to say, Maybe my movie is not going to be in a big theater, but I will learn something through this mm. experience. And maybe a critic's not going to like it, but I can learn something from that experience as well. And so that's what I'm working with with my own college students. That's great. 
Stephen? I think uh, what we tell our artists all the time, and we have to remind them and remind myself and our staff, is that our identity is not in the art that we mm. create, but it's in King Jesus who gives us the ability mm. to create that art. Mm-hmm. I and mean, that's, as, as artists, we, we're so involved and we, we pour out our, our hearts and our souls into the things that we create. And, and it's easy for our identity to, to be uh, misplaced onto that. And so we have to be a constant reminder that it's not because whether it's, um, whether it's you're accepted and you hear the praise of that, it leads to pride. And when you hear criticism or critique, it can lead to defeat and destruction. And so we have to always be recentering our artists on Jesus because at the end of the day, like, that is the only reason we have the ability to create in the first place. Mm. Yeah. No, and I think, you know, what, what you both are saying that I think is so important is there has to be a devotion to craft. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to be willing to write badly so we can write well. We have to be willing to make bad movies to make good ones and bad records to make good ones. Mm-hmm. And with, with the Christian subculture kind of shrinking, I mean, it feels like it's shrinking, yeah. that, pressure, that pressure mounts. When it's a smaller pool and a smaller pool of people, it's a little easier to bubble up. Mm-hmm. Um, but as that shrinks and breaks down, you have to compete in this other world, and so the call has to be more intense. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, final question. We just have a couple minutes. Let's imagine your 12-year-old niece or nephew, very serious about their faith. They come to you and they say, how do I know what I should be reading, <laughs> listening to? You know, what, how do I guard my heart, et cetera, et cetera? You know the question I'm asking here. So we'll just go. Who wants to go first? I'll, I'll, I won't force anybody this on that. My, All right, hit it. Constant job. That's right. Um, so if you're 12, your parents help you out here, right? <laughs> that's, but that's a bigger principle, which is listen to wise people. Um, so I think that artistic discernment can only happen in the context of community. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, that's something that we totally miss when we kind of um, start talking about content issues, is that works of art are not meant to be like you in your room with your laptop. I mean, you might have to do that. I certainly have to do that quite a bit. <laughs> but even so, generally, I spend my time with other critics talking about works of art. And so I'm listening to voices of wisdom there. Um, I'm not fearful of them. I don't think I have something to fear. I think the Holy Spirit, if we really believe in the Holy Spirit, then we have nothing to fear from a work of art. Um, but we have to also balance that with discernment. And so critics work to be voices of wisdom. Um, and then also your community is the biggest one that you can have. Yeah. Anybody want to add to that? I would just say, you know, it's the, the, just as the Bible has a canon of, of books, um, literature and art has a canon that has been, you know, judged by history and by people who know, uh, not that we can't stray outside of that, but it's a good place to start because mm-hmm. it's, those are works that are honorable. That's great. Mm-hmm. I think just leading by example with everything, you know, so being willing, if, if my, kid, my oldest son is eight and if he comes to me and wants to read a book and I haven't read it, I need to go with him through that and help him process it and walk through the truths that are in there, help, help him walk through the, uh, the, the negative, whatever might come, help him navigate and just be willing to, to step off in there and not be afraid to, to engage the arts. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, can you give our panelists a hand? Thank you for their time. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the ERLC podcast. You can find more information about the arts at ERLC.com. Don't miss next week as we hear an important message about the sanctity of life from Russell Moore.